You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Killnet hits Italian targets, access to Rutube is restored, activism in the hybrid war, Imitet surges, clearing up the confusion of NPM dependency confusion attacks, Tim Eads from Cyber Mentor Fund on finding the right investors, our guest is Michael DeBolt of Intel 471 on the growing interest in biometrics in the criminal underground, and cybercrime and punishment, Florida style. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, May 12, 2022. The morning situation report on Russia's war in Ukraine reports, roughly speaking, a stalemate, which from Moscow's point of view might as well be a defeat. Killnet, a hacktivist group aligned with Russian interests, has conducted nuisance-level attacks against a range of Italian targets, Reuters reports. The organizations affected include the Senate, the National Health Institute, and the Automobile Club d'Italia, the National Drivers Association. The nature of the attacks wasn't specified, but Killnet's track record and the speed with which the services were restored suggest distributed denial-of-service attacks. Killnet has counted coup against other governments hostile to Russia's special military operation, with Romania having received the most extensive attention from the gang. Reuters also reports that security teams have restored access to Rutube, Russia's autarctic alternative to YouTube, after the service was downed for three days by hacktivists acting in the perceived Ukrainian interest. The service was taken offline Monday during Russian Victory Day celebrations. Ukrainian security firm Hacken, which specializes in testing blockchain security, decamped from Kyiv at the beginning of the war and reestablished itself in Lisbon. Since then, the Wall Street Journal reports, the company has both sought to stay in business and to contribute to Ukraine's war effort by hacking Russian services. Among Hacken's contributions is the DDoS application Liberator, which allows users to volunteer their devices for use in DDoS attacks against Russian companies. The target selection is interesting and shows some insight into Russian logistical weaknesses. One of the companies hit, the journal says, manufactures military boots. At one level, it's difficult not to sympathize with Hacken and those like them, What thinking person wouldn't wish confusion to the Russian forces? But hacktivism has a downside that parallels the familiar downsides of irregular warfare 
that the laws of armed conflict have long struggled with. The annual Global HP Wolf Security Threat Insights report was recently released. The team has identified a 27-fold increase in Emotet malware campaigns in the first quarter of 2022, as compared to the last quarter of 2021, and is now the most common malware family at 9% of all malware identified. HP Wolf Security has identified techniques that cybercriminals are using, including an increase in non-office-based malicious file formats, an increase in HTML smuggling, and a two-for-one malware campaign that leads to rat infections. JFrog reporting yesterday on the NPM confusion attacks that they and others observed hitting German firms speculated that the incident might have amounted to nothing more than an unusually aggressive penetration testing effort. That now seems increasingly likely. JFrog reports, Following the publication of our blog post, a penetration testing company called Code White took responsibility for this dependency confusion attack. Code White says an intern did it. They say, Thanks for your excellent analysis at Sneak and don't worry, The malicious actor is one of our interns who was tasked to research dependency confusion as part of our continuous attack simulations for clients. JFrog doesn't give this particular pen test good reviews. Sashar Manash, their senior director of security research, wrote in an email, I think this level of payload on a legitimate pen test is pretty irresponsible. First of all, since the code has absolutely no indications in it, in the source code, or in its metadata, the NPM package description, this could have put the company's threat response team into high alert, wasting the client's resources on nothing. Adding a simple string for security pen test purposes on the NPM package description, or even in the source code, could have prevented this while still proving the point, as was presented in previous very successful attacks. In a rough-and-ready way, Intel 471 suggests that defenders look for three classes of tools, Trojans, Information Stealers, and, unsurprisingly, in the wake of the NPM dependency confusion incident in Germany, penetration testing tools. Those last, of course, have their legitimate uses, but they're also readily susceptible to abuse. This isn't, as Intel 471 cautions, anything remotely resembling a panacea, but it can be a useful starting point. And finally, there's been a conviction in a federal cyber fraud case in Florida. Actually, three convictions, all of them on guilty pleas. So here's what happened, according to the Office of the United States Attorney for the Middle District of Florida. These three guys all copped pleas to conspiracy to commit fraud and aggravated identity theft. The boys got busy... The trio conspired to knowingly and with intent to defraud possess thousands of counterfeit and unauthorized access devices, including the names, social security numbers, account numbers, usernames, and passwords of identity theft victims. These are not hacker masterminds. What was their secret? Volume, apparently, just like in the big, big sales Crazy Eddie used to run. They emailed each other the elements of personally identifiable information they came across, used it to open accounts fraudulently, and because your secret is volume, you don't have to hit on every try. And they also purchased server credentials from somewhat savvier hoods in the underground C2C market. 
IRS CI special agent in charge Brian Payne said, This trio wrongly assumed that their crimes would be untraceable, hidden under a cloak of Internet anonymity. Through sophisticated investigation techniques, IRS CI and our partners uncovered a digital set of footprints leading to these three criminals. Today's sentencing now holds them accountable for their crimes and should serve as a warning to others involved in this parasitic behavior. So take heeds, wise youths, and turn, turn away from that life of crime. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. The security team at Intel 471 has been tracking increased activity on dark web markets and forums regarding biometric security controls. Michael DeBolt is chief intelligence officer at Intel 471. Cyber criminals are opportunistic. Financially motivated cyber criminals are just looking for every each way uh, they can get in and they can uh, monetize based on their access and the data they can get they can get access to. And so they're looking at biometric authentication how they can get access to that data and then how they can find vulnerabilities to extract that information um, and then leverage that in the financially motivated cybercrime underground is kind of the next, the next phase. 
Yeah, one of the things that your research pointed out was the the use of this biometric information um, in a lot of national identification cards. I, I think you know, here in the U.S., that's uh, an area where perhaps we lag behind some other nations that are leading the way with this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, one example of, so we, we would call this document, uh, documentation fraud, and it caught our attention back in late 2020. And we've seen a couple of situations that emulate this as well. We've had two Iranian actors coming into the marketplace and they offered to sell biometric and, and also other identification documents that could be leveraged in multiple countries. And they, what they were claiming is that they had leaked that or stolen that from an Iranian government website. And this was something around 80,000 national ID cards. Now we couldn't confirm hundred percent the validity of those claims, but you know, if it's true, it just kind of gives an example of the, uh, the volume to which um, biometric-based ID cards can be used um, and, and sold in the underground to further, you know, illicit, illicit criminal activity. You know, I, I think for most of us in our imagination, when we think of biometric uh, authentication, it probably c- comes in two categories. One is the you know, the Hollywood version where, you know, uh, somebody in a Mission Impossible movie either scans their handprint or or does a retina scan. But then there's also the day-to-day stuff that I think many of us experience, you know, things like Touch ID or Face ID or, you know, the, the various platform versions of that. What is the, the practical use of these that are on the dark web. I mean, when, if someone gets your biometric information from one of these national cards, what does that open up for them? Yeah, I think, and I think you're right. I think there's just, we already talked about documentation fraud. That's, that's one. Really, it comes down to um, you know, building new identity profiles using that biometric information and spoofing or impersonating the true identity of the person that you stole so I see. Uh, and I would also say that because this is somewhat of a new sort of thing for us, you know, utilizing biometric authentication as a security mechanism um, is still somewhat new. Um, it's certainly newer than you know, traditional password-based authentication uh, methods. The actors are starting to talk a little bit more about this, discussing, sharing new ideas about how to access this kind of information and uh, how to how to leverage it for furtherance in their criminal activity and their schemes. You know, from an organizational point of view, do do you have recommendations for implementing these sorts of things? I mean, users love the convenience of it, but is it something to keep an eye on that you know it's it's not the panacea that that it may seem to be? Yeah, I think you're right. So, just like passwords, you know, encryption, uh, encryption, encryption, right? Encryption is a must. Both for in transit and at rest biometric patterns and and the profiles and templates that that are stored in the back end. Also, just like passwords or really any other type of proprietary or sensitive data that you're storing, pay really close attention to exposed databases. A lot of the the specific examples that we've seen in the underground are as a result of leaked or uh, exposed databases that are really openly accessible on the internet. So just make sure that we're scrutinizing um, sensitive databases, making sure that we're segmenting them properly within the network. Um, and those those tips kind of, they apply to broadly, you know, any authentication uh, method that you're using, password-based or biometric-based or anything else. But I think there's a couple of others that are more specific to biometric authentication. So um, a, lot, a lot of 
organizations use anti-fraud or anti-spoof vendors. And some of those, you know, they're, they're really great options for password-based fraud monitoring, but not all of them cover biometrics. They just haven't caught up or they're just not their focus area. So just make sure you have something in place to ensure you're able to, you know, monitor spoof and impersonation attempts and ensure that, uh, you know, the systems that you have in place and the internal processes can, can pick up on those things. And then kind of in the same vein, if you're using a third-party vendor solution, and, and third-party risk is a huge thing right now with solar winds and some of the other stuff that we've seen over the past you know, 12 months or so. And so this is, this is the same for biometric authentication, right? If you're using a third-party vendor solution for biometric authentication, make sure you fully understand you know, how your data is being handled, how it's being stored. Um, and then also I'd say, say alert to any possible sort of third-party breach incidents that may be affecting that third party that will have a downstream effect on your users. And then last but not least, you know, a lot of the stuff that we try to illuminate in our reporting is from the perspective of the bad guy and in the cybercrime underground. And so when you have monitoring in place, you understand what the threat actors are prioritizing, what they're going after, how they're um, obtaining this information from in the first place, and then how they're you know, using it as a, in, in their end goals and their end schemes. It's really important to understand all of that so you can uh, put together the security controls internally to be able to mitigate that more proactively. That's Michael DeBolt from Intel 471. And joining me once again is Tim Eads. He's the CEO at VArmor and co-founder of the Cyber Mentor Fund. Uh, you know, Tim, you and I have spoken previously and, and uh, you sort of touched on this notion of finding the right venture fund to fit your organization's particular needs. I, I want to dig into that, spend a little more time on that. Um, what's the importance there? Thanks, Dave. It's good to be here. I think the when you look at raising money, you're looking at getting married. Look at it that way, right? So when you get married, you have to date first. You want to date first for for all sorts of reasons on both sides, right? And when you get into that dating scenario, you can get to know somebody. You get to see how they react. In in the in the adventure uh, or the investor side of these things, you need to go talk to the previous CEOs that they work with and say what happened when the company was getting acquired. What happened when the company was going through a tough time very easy to get good feedback when it's a good time. What happened when you did a misstep? What happened if you missed a quarter? What happened if you, when you were trying to get acquired, did they agree? Were they constructive? Did they come with the right advice? So as you're going through that process of dating and raising money and dating, make sure you do your reference checks about the bad times, you know, through talking to previous CEOs that they've been partnering with. Because divorce is expensive, complicated, and very difficult to get people off the board, particularly if it's not set up correctly. So, you know, I always I always look at it. You know, investing and in, and in marriage is the same thing. <laughs> you know, I I think when it comes to 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 uh, perhaps stretch your uh, your dating metaphor to its limits, there's that notion that uh, you know desperation is not attractive um, for the folks who are out there trying to raise the money. Does that apply to them as well? Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, absolutely. I, I mean. I always tell people it takes you about five months to raise money, 
right? From when you start dating to when the money's in the bank, you know, and you should assume kind of that kind of time period. I will also tell you, raise like 30% more money than you thought you were going to have because you never know. You might make a misstep and it's always, you know, when you come to do another round, you need to do it from a position of strength. But start dating, do it casually to begin with, you know, meet three or four independent VCs, pull together four or five slides, get to know them. They need to get to know that you can, you have the, you know, you have the domain permission, you have the right technology, you understand the problem statement and that you have the right team and and you can execute milestones. Then over those four or five months, they've got to get to know you, that you're hitting those milestones that you put out there. But at the same time, you've got to row, row back to them. And, I would strongly advise that they need to come up with a list of questions, they, the entrepreneur, of what you want to ask these people. You know, tell me about it when an investment went wrong. Tell me, tell me the bad side of what goes on. Tell me how you reacted. Too often, some of the entrepreneurs don't feel that they have that right or that permission to ask those questions. And I would absolutely say they do. And it's good. It's, it's a good right. And they need to ask that. Does it sometimes happen where, you know, you'll meet with someone as a funder and you'll say, this is not a good match for me. You know, this is definitely not a a love connection here, but I think I might know someone who, you know, fits your needs better than I do. For sure. I think there, um, some people will come to the cyber mentor fund or other venture friends of mine and say, we are looking at the world this way. And sometimes we might just have a philosophical disagreement or we might turn around and say, look, you know, uh, we already have a, a, an investment in that category. Please stop communicating. We're not we're not that kind of group. But however, look, there is, there's there's room for more than one company in this space. Go talk to Jonathan at Signalfire or someone like that, or you know Charles or at, at Raleigh or somebody. But like you know, we're not, you know, uh, uh, the fundamental mission that I think we we live by and we should all live by is making the countries and the the uh, the enterprises more secure. And no one company will take it all. So we we, we farm those off. But yeah, sometimes you you meet with people, and in my opinion, if they're just uncoachable and they don't have the self awareness, those are the times where we then we'll we'll bow out gracefully and just say, "Hey, not quite a fit," because we go in as a cyber mentor fund very very early, and we find it very very rewarding by doing that. But it, it, it's going to be a reciprocal envi- environment. Right? It's going to be fun on both sides. All right. Well, Tim Eads, thanks for joining us. That's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Rachel Gelfin, Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.